1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is University of Michigan professor of classical studies, David Potter, and we are discussing his new book, The Victor's Crown, A History of Ancient Sport from Homer to Byzantium, published in November 2011 by Oxford University Press. Most of us have some bit of knowledge of the games of ancient Greece and Rome. We have a picture of the gladiator matches and the chariot races from films like Ben-Hur, Spartacus, and Gladiator, and our basic understanding of the ancient Olympics is refreshed every four years by the television hosts of the modern games. Not surprisingly, though, much of this conventional knowledge of ancient sports is inaccurate. For instance, As David Potter explains in his book and our interview, gladiators rarely fought to the death. Yes, they suffered terrible injuries, and sometimes died as a result of those injuries, but gladiators were the professional athletes of their day. They drew broad followings of fans and plenty of money for their owners. So, for a Roman empresario to deliberately send one of his gladiators to the death, would be like a current team owner sacrificing a star player, say like Robert Kraft putting Tom Brady on the football field without any equipment. Now don't be afraid. This is not the case of a professor and his dry facts snuffing out our long-held, colorful view of the past. David's book presents ancient sports as even more intriguing and compelling than our standard notions. To give an example... We learned that the chariot racers didn't need giant spikes sticking out of the wheels to make the races exciting. It was dangerous enough to have 12 teams of six horses each racing around an oval track. I was surprised by plenty of new discoveries while reading his book, and I think you'll learn a lot from our conversation. David offers the expertise of an established scholar, as well as the appreciation of a fan. So let's turn to the interview. On the line from Ann Arbor, my guest today is David Potter. David, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for coming on the program.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to talk to you this morning.
1: So to start, I'll ask you to give a bit of introduction of yourself. Uh, You've written histories of ancient Rome and the Roman emperors, but as you explain in the preface to your book, you've also had direct involvement with athletics at the University of Michigan, where you teach so could you tell us about your interest in contemporary sports and ancient sports and what led you to write this particular book? Yes. Uh, when I was in
0: college, I was actually a student-athlete. I may have been perhaps uh, the worst wrestler in the NCAA <laughs> at that point in time, uh, but I enjoyed it very much, and it was an important part of my uh, my college life. Uh, when I came to Michigan, uh, we had a course called Sport and Daily Life in the Ancient World, and I began to teach it shortly after I got here. Uh, and over the years, I've watched this course uh, develop, and um, in the course of that, I've also gotten to be very closely connected at times with the Michigan athletic department. Uh, and in the in the course of my work with the Michigan athletic department, of course, I've also been on the advisory board for the collegiate athletics. And so I was able to sit and watch how big-time athletics, a big-time athletic organization, actually works. Uh, What are their concerns? I was able to talk with coaches. and Of course, we've had some great coaches here at Michigan, like Lloyd Carr or Carol Hutchins, and uh, be able to talk to them about what their concerns are, how they bring athletes along, uh, what do they look for in a good athlete. And and as I began to talk to them, I began to realize uh, the very many points of contact there were between concerns nowadays uh, and those that we can read about in the distant past. Uh, one of the great concerns that you have any time that you're going to be a coach is have you picked the right person? Is this going to be the right uh, mixture of personalities? Uh, And in one of the books that we talk about extensively uh, in The Victor's Crown, um, is a work by a man named Philosophus in the early third century. A large part of this is about how the coach figures out what makes a good recruit, who is going to work well with him. Uh, In the recent redesign of Michigan Stadium, we began to uh, look at issues of how you organize seating and space uh, within within this structure, and it suddenly became very clear that these are very similar issues uh, to ones that people were running into in the ancient world. Uh, and finally, of course, there's a, the, the issue of, of fair competition. How do you ensure any time that there's going to be a lot of money involved, that a lot of people are involved with something, that they're very excited about something, it's a, pretty much inevitable that somebody is going to try to cheat. Now these are problems that go back to the very earliest moments of ancient sport, uh, as they, of course, unfold in the NCAA or the NFL today.
1: So, talking about a lot of money involved in sports and cheating in sports, I, I think there's something of this uh, conventional understanding or, or a myth about the ancient Olympics in particular that these were that this was sport in a pure form, and it really wasn't the case, was it?
0: No, it wasn't. Um, Sport in its pure form is first and foremost incredibly competitive, and that means that somebody is always going to try to get an angle, uh, get ahead of their opponent. Uh, it was really the late 19th century which invented this notion of a time in the distant past when all athletes were amateurs. I mean, in the very earliest account we have of an athletic event, which is in the 23rd book of Homer's Iliad, there's an assumption that somebody's going to try to cheat. Uh, when we turn to Olympia, you know, of course, it's famous that the athletes there only received an olive crown at Olympia for their victory. When they got back to their home city, of course, they were heroes and received enormous amount of uh, financial support and financial benefit for what they'd done. Uh, there was never really
1: an amateur era in big-time sport. And there were also in the – we're getting ahead of ourselves, but uh... – with the Greeks and the Olympic Games, there were there were free agent athletes as well, athletes who would move from Polis to Polis. Correct?
0: That's absolutely right. Um, if you didn't like the management, as it were, in your home city, if you didn't like the government, uh, you would move to another city, and you might be very well rewarded for doing so. Uh, there are a number of famous athletes in the early fifth century uh, who moved to places which were where they're going to be better treated. I um, mean, it's just as, just as they would do nowadays if they can. All right, so I want to
1: ask some some more introductory questions before we get into uh, specifics of the book. And as you've already brought up, uh, throughout the book you, you point to parallels between ancient sports and contemporary sports, and we'll talk about more of these in the course of the interview. But I want to ask first about something you, you point out at the very beginning of the book. You remark that there have been only two periods in history – when sports have been a prominent part of society and culture today and in the Mediterranean during the the ancient and classical period. So why do you think that is? What is it about these two periods of history that has made sports so important?
0: There are a number of factors here. Uh, One of them is simply having the leisure time and the wealth to devote uh, to entertainment, uh, to sport. and the ancient world, uh, especially in the Roman Empire, sort of Roman power uh, guaranteed peace within the central area of the empire, uh, it was possible to support very elaborate athletic networks. I mean, one of the things, of course, is true uh, nowadays as well, uh, in order for there to be large-scale athletic contests, you need to be able to devote uh, substantial resources to infrastructure and organization. Uh, and now this was true of the Greek world, where people were willing to do this. They believed it was very important to them. It was true in the Roman Empire, where certainly the imperial government uh, felt that athletics helped bind the empire together. Um, it's something where you got a great deal of buy-in at the local level. You got a great deal of, sort of fan interest. But people also had the leisure to do this. There was some extra money around. Uh, there were resources that you could devote to building very large stadiums to enhancing uh, entertainment uh, buildings of all size, whether that be theaters or amphitheaters or circuses, uh, and to paying athletes enormous amounts of money uh, to participate in these things. And that is something, of course, that's uh, only been true really uh, since then in the 20th
1: century. So something else you discuss throughout the book, uh, and you just mentioned it briefly, uh, which is important to sports in both the ancient and contemporary context, is the involvement of fans. So could you explain the, the importance of fans in, in ancient sports?
0: The fans really drive ancient sport. There's just a constant dialogue between what goes on on the field and what the, how the fans are going to react to it. Uh, fans like there's heroes to represent their own value system. Uh, they like to think that they're very tough, that they can endure hardship which is, of course, a feature of everybody's life in the ancient world, a world without air conditioning, a world where you have to cook your own food on a fire, you start. Uh, this sort of notion of a, of a hero or an athlete uh, who can overcome great adver- adversity is something that's very popular in the ancient world. Uh, another thing, of course, that fans like is to see things become a little bit more dangerous. they like to see their sports develop. And one of the things that's characteristic of ancient sport is we tend to move uh, towards events which become slightly more dangerous, a good deal more dangerous. Uh, the chariot racing at Olympia, for instance, which involves 48 chariots, uh, is almost a sort of horse-drawn demolition derby by the end. Uh, the sport of pancration, which combines boxing and wrestling, uh, very much like the ultimate fighting nowadays, uh, is a composite sport. But it's a very, very dangerous sport. Uh, and that's clearly something that was developed because of fan interest in wondering is the boxer tougher than the wrestler who's the better athlete how can you tell well, you create a sport which combines both of those uh, in uh Roman uh, chariot racing uh, as well although you would initially have races uh, with four horse chariots we will see occasionally people racing six, chari- six horse chariots it's got to be very much more dangerous it's very hard to control the team that way or you would make a a charioteer switch from his normal team of horses to another team of horses really raises the question in the fan's mind there, is it the horse or the driver that makes the difference? Uh, and we can see this throughout the ancient world, this desire of the fan, not just to watch the same old thing, time in and time out. They want to see something different, just as nowadays uh, fans who go to a football game don't want to be watching a 1950s rushing attack.
1: mm mm-hmm. So let's turn back to the, uh, the Olympic Games. And, uh, so, so many people have, have some bits of knowledge about the ancient Olympics. And every four years when we have our Olympics, we get, a, we get a new primer from, from the folks on NBC about the ancient Olympics. But can you give us a more, a more educated view of when the Olympic Games began and the role that they had in Greek society and culture?
0: Yes. The Olympic Games are really surrounded in myths,
1: both their beginning and
0: their end. Uh, we have a traditional date for the foundation of the Olympics in 776 B.C. and a traditional date for the end of the Olympics in 393 A.D. And both of those dates were actually invented. Um, Because the Olympics uh, were competing with other festivals, uh, the people who sponsored them uh, wanted to make people feel that they were much older because in the ancient world, older is always better. Uh, So they created a history of the games that took them back a hundred or more years before they were actually founded. Uh, In point of fact, the professional athletics uh, in the ancient world uh, really come into being as cities begin to develop in Greece uh, between 600 and 500 B.C. And the start dates for the other uh, famous all-Greek contests which are held at Isthmia in the northern Peloponnese and at Nemea, which isn't very far from there, uh, or at Delphi, the home of the famous... Uh, Delphic Oracle, uh, are all founded in the first half of the 6th century B.C., between 600 and 500 B.C., uh, and the Olympic Games seem to be a little bit older than that, uh, but not a great deal older than that. Uh, and they really, these festivals come about uh, as a way for people from different cities to come together and actually to compete, and to meet with each other on neutral ground. Uh, and in the 5th century, actually, as the Greeks are looking um, to face an invasion for the, by the Persians, the sort of events that people see in 300 now, um, it was actually at Olympia that they came together because that was a natural place for Greek cities, for Greeks to congregate. Um, at the far end of this, uh, it's believed that the games were put out of operation by a, a Christian emperor, Theodosius. Uh, in point of fact, uh, we have texts from Olympia showing that the games were continuing Uh, well after the time of Theodosius, uh, that there's actually a church uh, that is built there uh, in the 5th century that goes hand-in-hand with continuing athletic events. Uh, What happens in Olympia in the 5th century is actually they run out of money, and the games come to
1: an end then. So in describing the games, you give a close-up picture of the Olympics of 476 BC. So by that time, how many events were there? Uh, at Olympia, how many participating athletes, how many city-states sent, uh, sent athletes to the Games?
0: Well, 476 uh, was a great year because it's the, the first Olympics after the victory over Persia. Uh, and everybody who could came to the Games uh, that year. There would be people coming uh, from hundreds of cities uh, to watch really the most elite athletes uh, that they could possibly see. Uh, because Olympic events are all held on one day, all the boxing, wrestling, and pancreation, the so-called combat events, would all be held on one day, there were really strict limitations on the number of people who would mm-hmm. be allowed to compete. And People would come to Olympia in advance, and they'd practice before the eyes of the judges, uh, and they'd be worried that they would be excluded. And many of them were, uh, but you could only have uh, 12 to 16 contestants in each of these combat events, because you'd have to get through four rounds in one day, these are really endurance contests. Uh, very hard, uh, very hard to do, and very hard uh, for athletes to actually survive. And some of the most famous bouts at Olympia actually ended uh, with the exhaustion of one of the two, compa- two competitors. Um, in addition to the boxing and wrestling and uh there are a series of uh, foot races. Um, uh, the stadion race, which is a 200-yard sprint, uh, a 400-yard dash, a long-distance race, and one of the odder races of all is race in armor, uh, where you have to put on your helmet and pick up a shield and put greaves on your legs, and you don't wear anything else because Greek athletics are always in the nude, uh, and then uh, run a long, uh, a long race, and it seems pretty clearly whacking people with your shield as you went. In addition to that. Uh, There would be the chariot races. There would be races for two-horse chariots and four-horse chariots. Uh, There would also be horse races. Uh, And then one of the otter events would be a race for mule carts. That was banned for being boring after a while.
1: (laughs) So are all these events going on simultaneously, then, to to fit them into one day?
0: Uh, Sorry, each type of event has its own day. Oh, okay, Uh, okay. The horse races are all in one day. Uh, the foot races and also the pentathlon are on another day, and the combat events are on the la- are, are on the last day. Okay.
1: And so, how many spectators would have been would have been there in in four seventy six BC, say?
0: Um, Olympia is a very hard place to get to, mm-hmm. uh, but that didn't just deter people from taking a a month or two off to go to Olympia. And it looks to looks to us from the seating capacity, from what we can see, that there could be twenty thousand people showing up or more. Uh, they'd, bring, they'd go and they'd camp out on the site, which was a pretty uncomfortable place to be in August. It was famous for its flies. Uh, and you can imagine what it's like to have a campsite with 20,000 people for a week and a half. Uh, that's real devotion on the fans' part.
1: So it's more like a, a music festival that your students go to rather than the modern Olympics in terms of organization. I think if we sort of thought of
0: the Olympics is looking like something like Woodstock every four years without rain. We'd be there.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, you mentioned uh, athletes running, running in the nude. And, of course, this, this is something my students always ask about is, uh, why, why did Greek athletes compete naked?
0: The, the question of why Greek athletes were naked is a very hard one to answer. Uh, there are a variety of theories uh, about this. Uh, but the thing that strikes me is that in Greek art, important people, people who are people you look up to, are always betr- portrayed in the nude. And we know that athletes originally weren't naked. Uh, in Homer, they're wearing loincloths. Uh, and Thucydides tells us that Greek athletics uh, in the nude really began not be- too long before his own lifetime in the 5th century uh, AD. Uh, and I think this has got to do with the association uh, in the Greek mind between uh, nudity and, and importance, you have to see your whole hero uh, as it were. You know, it's not as if people otherwise uh, in public life take their clothes off on a regular basis, uh, but what we see in Greek art is very telling uh, that uh, heroes are portrayed in the nude, uh, that warriors uh, in mythologic contests uh, are often portrayed in the nude. And it seems to me that athletes are sort of bringing before you what you expect your hero to look like
1: so something you discuss in depth is how the Greeks wrote about the games so how did how did poets and chroniclers shape the Greek story of the Olympics
0: well I think it's fair to say the world's first sport writers were Greek poets mm-hmm. uh, they you know had the ability of a grandland rice to really bring an enormous amount of verve and excitement to their description of the games. We have poets like Pindar who always compare athletes to mythological heroes. That's just part of the poem they would compose on people's victories. Uh, and the same with, with Bacchylides, whose poetry comes in this way. Uh, in the Homeric poems, again, it's the great heroes who compete. Uh, and Homer gives us an idea of what would be expected of uh, he always tells us, you know, that, for instance, that boxing is, is hard and painful and wrestling is painful. Uh, he gives us an idea of a chariot race, how you try to maneuver your chariot and push other people out of the way. Uh, in Pindar as well, we get a sense of the struggle of the athlete. Uh, it's really the sports writer as well who creates the popular image of the writer, uh, sorry, of the athlete, uh, then as now.
1: Yeah, and it, when I was reading in your section about Pindar in particular, and you mentioned Grantland Rice, I thought this, this is probably the, the clearest analogy of, of someone who is, it's that style of early 20th century myth building, creating the, the four horsemen in, in terms of their writing about sports.
0: Yes, that's absolutely, absolutely the case. And uh, athletes are very conscious of this being something they want done about themselves. Uh, they'll certainly be spreading stories. They have their own publicists, as it were, as it were. they seem, to, in some cases, to be their own publicists. Uh, there's a, a man by the name of Theogenes of Fesos, uh and is an immensely successful boxer uh, with a very long career uh, who people will think of as being even more than human, as a, as a hero. And it's interesting that in, uh, one, in the Olympics of 476, uh, he's also going to be running into Euthymus of Lacris, uh, who's a great wrestler uh, who who seems to have been spreading stories about the fact that he was able to defeat sort of demons on his way to the games. <laughs> uh, Milo of Croton, the greatest wrestler of all time, is a six time Olympic champion and lost in the finals of his seventh uh, Olympiad, would dress up like Hercules. Huh. And he put on displays of strength for people to come. And see why he was the greatest of all time uh, so the athlete and the and the writer can work together on this
1: and and the athletes were presented not just in in odes but they would also receive statues in their honor correct in their in their home city
0: yes exactly they you would uh, put up statues either at Olympia or your home city preferably both I think huh. uh, these statues were, were were very expensive items as would be Poem you would commission from a poet like Pindar, uh, but you'd want to, the point of this statue is not only to commemorate what you've done on this occasion for all time, but to project your image for other people, so they can look you and see this is what you were. This is the, this is what a champion athlete looks like. Uh, this is how you should think of them. Uh, so these statues are, are also sort of animated, so you can get a sense for the
1: person. In just in you talking, I remembered a line from, from Pindar, and I don't think it was in your book, but I remember reading it years ago, where he spoke about old athletes being thrown aside. Is that, is that correct? Did he write something in that regard, kind of in a, in a critical way, looking at the way cities celebrate their athletes and then, and then cast them off? No,
0: that's absolutely right. And he also uh, writes that way about the loser in an athletic mm-hmm. contest. You can be an Olympic finalist, you know, as Pindar points out to us, and if you don't win, you're nobody. You, you crawl home in disgrace, even though you're the second best person in the world.
1: So he was, he was both celebrating these games, but he also took something of a skeptical view of them.
0: I think he did, yes. I mean, he, he understood the way the world worked, uh, and he understood the cost to the athlete. Um, he understood that not everybody is going to win. Uh,
1: and what does that mean? What does that do for you? Mm-hmm. So you have a section as well describing the, the training center for athletes, the, uh, the gymnasium, we would pronounce it. And uh, so what role did the gymnasium play in the life of a Greek city-state?
0: Well, the gymnasium is a very interesting institution uh, because it really develops around education and boys' sports, and it's really quite separate uh, from professional athletic training professional athletes might work out in the in the city gym uh or they might have their own private training area. Uh but it's for teenage boys to come together in the first instance. They uh learn how to be good sports. Uh they learn how to work with their teammates. Uh they uh they have contests and who can be the most fit, the best trained. Uh this is a, a social center uh where people are supposed to sort of model uh, ideal behavior for each other, uh, where you're supposed to learn teamwork, uh, to learn citizenship. Uh, And it's interesting that the gymnasium uh, develops as an institution of the Greek city uh, actually a good deal later than the great festivals of the Olympic Games. Uh, The average Greek athlete is like the average athlete nowadays. Uh, It's somebody who would play in middle school and high school and maybe uh, into their early 20s, uh, but wouldn't really expect to go on into professional competition, uh, but they feel it would help them uh, become uh, a better person as a result of having do, done it.
1: So you talked about some of the, the lessons that young athletes were taught, and uh, once again going back to, to something you brought up earlier in, in terms of when the, when the British rediscovered or 19th century Europeans rediscovered athletics and they looked back to to the Greeks as kind of this time of pure amateur athletics. And the British in particular attached virtues to sport. Uh, and and foremost among these are, are fair play, sportsmanship, being a good loser. Uh, what kind what kinds of virtues did the Greeks attach to to being a good athlete?
0: It's, it's interesting that the British reading of uh, what went on in the gymnasium as an educational institution is actually a very good reading of what the Greeks thought you should do, um, that they thought that you should uh, learn, how to,
1: learn how to play hard,
0: uh, that you should learn how to be a good sport, uh, that the victories that you won would reflect on your standing in the community as a whole. What was not understood in the 19th and early, early 20th centuries was that the sports of the gymnasium? while well, they might be the same. You might learn how to wrestle. You might learn something about pancreation or boxing or foot races. Uh, that most of the people engaging in these sports weren't going to be professional athletes, uh, and that there was a there was a two-tier athletic system in the ancient world.
1: So, was it evident that there was something of a of a, a tiered system among the athletes or a, or a class division?
0: There was a very clear class division sometimes professional athletes would work out in separate gyms or at separate times they would have their own private trainers whereas in Greek cities the state would hire trainers, not all of them uh, are going to be high class professional athletes professional athletes are trained usually by people with professional experience uh, they have uh, doctors who know how to look after them they have very carefully conditioned diets uh, in fact non-athletes lost often comment on the sufferings of a professional athlete, uh, how they have to uh, be in training all of the time. Uh, Whereas for the average person, going down to the gym, working out, hanging out with your friends, uh, this was a part of daily life, but very different from that of a professional athlete. Uh, I do suspect that as now, uh, trainers would be on the lookout uh, for potentially excellent athletes, uh, people with special talents in the gymnasium, Uh, and then they would see whether or not they could be uh, turned into professional athletes. But for that, there was a lot of money involved. Trainers don't have money to pay. Uh, They expect to be paid high fees. Uh, So most Greek athletes were actually people of quite substantial means uh, so that they could be able to compete.
1: So looking at at training, and you talked about nutrition, uh, how did the training methods of the Greeks and their prescriptions for nutrition compare to what athletes do today?
0: Uh, ancient Greek training techniques, uh, developed on the basis of an awful lot of empirical evidence. Uh, and it became, becomes quite clear that people did understand the relationship between diet and performance. Uh, athletes were urged, for instance, to lay off the wine before any kind of, uh, any kind of contest. Uh, they ate low-fat diets. They often ate a very high-carb diet. Because it was very important in the contest at Olympia, for instance, where you've got to be able to compete, uh, three or four times in your event on the same day within a few hours to have a lot of explosive strength. This is what actually, uh, a high carbohydrate diet will do. They will tend to eat a good deal more meat as well than, uh, than the average person. Uh, they will tend to vary their diet according to their training regimes. Uh, there's really a good deal of, of actual physiological science that goes into uh, athletics in this period.
1: So was training, uh, were the training methods similar across the city-states or did, uh, say, Sparta have different training methods uh, than than Corinth?
0: Well, training methods, I think, are pretty universal. You look to the individual trainer who might have a special angle, I mean, the same way you might hire a football coach. Uh, nowadays because they have a special offense or a special defense they're able to run and you think you might be successful with that but when it comes to, to training techniques uh there were books that were widely circulated on how to train, Uh there were people getting together and talking about it, there were no sort of great secrets, you might think that one technique would work better with a specific athlete and I could well imagine the parents who thought that they had a son uh, who would be able to compete at the international level uh, would look to a trainer uh, just as parents would look for a coach now who would make uh, the best use of their child's talents, but no, there were no sort of secret Spartan ways of doing this or Corinthian ways of doing it
1: okay. was there was there a most uh, or a more successful polis in terms of success at the games? Do you find that uh that one city seemed to do better over a course of period than another
0: There are occasionally times where there will be a concentration of really great athletes in one city. And one of the, the earliest examples of this is the city of Croton in southern Italy, uh, which produced the great Milo of Croton, but it also produced the athlete uh, who was able to beat him in that seventh Olympiad. Uh, and there are a number of other famous athletes uh, from that area. Um, later in the Roman Empire, uh, we can see that certainly there was a really good gym in sort of northern Egypt training people who wanted to be pancritists. There are a lot of excellent athletes uh who come out of Egypt in the second and third centuries AD. Um a city in southern Turkey called the Spendos, which puts wrestlers uh on its coins actually, uh, is advertising. I think it's uh the excellence of its of training facilities, its trainers at that point. Uh but I think a lot of this just depends on being able to get a couple of good coaches together and they attract the best athletes to themselves.
1: I want to turn now to the Romans, and in making the transition in the book, you point out that the differences between the Greek and Roman understandings of sports are evident in the very words, in Greek and Latin, that they use to describe an athletic event. So could you talk about that difference just in the basic terms they used?
0: Yes. For the Greeks, an athletic event is an agon. It's a contest. For the Romans, it's either a ludus, a game, or a festival, or a munis, or a gift. And this reflects a very top-down Roman attitude towards entertainment, that whereas in the Greek world, the entertainer will be a citizen, somebody who's immensely respected uh, for that, a member, regular member of the community. Uh, in the Roman world, entertainers are always seen as servants. Uh, and uh, you would never, as a Roman aristocrat, think of sort of uh, competing yourself uh, as an athlete before the public now, You might work out in your private gym, and certainly a lot of people did that, uh, and they were fascinated uh, by the possibility that they might be as good as the people they hired. Uh, but the actual entertainer, the actual athlete that you saw, was always somebody uh, who was seen as a servant.
1: So probably the major sport of the Romans was was chariot racing. Can you talk about how, how chariot racing began and its prominence in Roman society?
0: Uh, chariot racing... Uh, in Rome, is c- connected actually with the Circus Maximus, as the, uh, the Massimo now uh, in Rome. It was an area where you could uh, run 12 chariots abreast, uh, and uh, the track would be seven laps around the Circa Massimo. Uh, so again, it was something of an endurance contest. Uh, but the way that the sport evolved was really, I think, shaped by the space that was actually available in uh, in Rome for it. And it seems to have begun very uh, very early. There's some records of chariot racing suggestions of it going back into the uh, earliest periods of Roman history. Uh, our records of the development of the city of Rome uh, show us that some permanent starting gates are being erected in the Circus Maximus uh, as early as the 4th century B.C., well before there's any other kind of permanent buildings for sport, which shows us, I think, just how important this was. Uh, there are a few permanent seats erected on the side of the Circus Maximus uh, for famous people so they could sit and watch the races. Uh, when the races were being held, the Romans would always build temporary wooden stands because it's a large part of the city and you don't want to take it out of uh, use all the time, that is, until uh, the imperial period when the marble uh, circus was built. Uh, but in, in the Republic, people still needed that space for other things from time to time. But uh, by the time of the Emperor Augustus in the late first century uh, BC, or his predecessor Julius Caesar, uh, it had become a prestige project to build up the Circus Maximus as a gift. Again, this concept of the gift being central to Roman sports, uh, from the leader to his people. Uh, and Augustus actually turned the central barrier of the Circus Maximus into something of a victory monument. Uh, commemorating his uh, rise to power and defeat of opponents in sea battles uh, along the way. It so happened that the uh, god Neptune who's the god of the sea is also uh, the god of horses so it made a sort of obvious connection uh, for him there and Augustus first uh, put in marble seats and then later emperors like Trajan uh, built up the whole area out of marble so that it would be a central place for the emperor to make contact with the subjects and he would be expected to go there and uh, sit through the chariot races, listening to people, uh, as they would uh, occasionally complain about things that were going on in the world around them. It was a place for the Roman people really to assemble, not just for fun, uh, but occasionally as well to let the emperor know what was on their
1: minds. So were these, I, I was thinking of a professor I had when I was an undergraduate, and he was uh he was. He taught in the classics department. He was also a Maoist. He proudly wore a Mao pin, and I remember he wrote an editorial in the school in the university newspaper. It was right before the Super Bowl, and he was talking about uh, modern sports and, in particular, the Super Bowl as uh, the the means by which the bourgeoisie uh, kept the the proletariat. Uh, mollified. So do you have a with that and and then they did make a connection to ancient sport. We see the same thing with the ancient Romans he said. So thinking of the games as a gift and talking about the importance of building stadia by the by the emperors was that their aim to basically keep the population placated? There's a
0: very famous uh, line in a Roman poet it says the Roman people used to be interested in, in wars and matters of state and now all they care about is bread and circuses. Uh, And there's a fair amount of truth to that, uh, that emperors realized, and and people in government anywhere across the Roman Empire uh, realized that they had to be seen to be doing something that the average person could benefit from. Uh, They had to provide subsidized grain, and they had to provide games that people would enjoy. So yes, it is absolutely a form of... I think a Roman would say we're trying to bring social peace this way. Uh, it's a requirement of civic magistrates. It's a requirement of uh, of emperors uh, to make sure that the games actually work for people. And if they don't work, they can expect to hear from uh to hear about it.
1: So I want to go back, and you had mentioned earlier uh, the involvement of, of Julius Caesar in the building of, of Circus Maximus, and it was interesting. I, I was surprised to read that he was one of the most important figures in the history of sport in Rome. So could you talk about his role not only with chariot racing, but with uh, gladiator matches?
0: Yes, Julius Caesar was one of the greats of impresarios. That's why he was such a good politician. He understood how to reach out to the Roman people, and he realized that a great way to show people what a nice guy he was, how he cared for their interests, uh, was by providing good chariot races. Uh, and providing uh, the best gladiators, and it's interesting. Caesar put together as early as the 60s a group of more than 300 gladiators, and he was going to put on a display of these gladiators. Uh, and his political rivals banned him from doing this, which was for Caesar a great political success. See what I want to do for you, and they won't let me do it. Uh, but later on, he would also rent out his gladiators to other people, and he seems to have been taking a keen interest in his players not being killed. Uh, We're told, in fact, that uh, he would have his agents wandering around Italy, uh, going to gladiatorial fights, and if they saw a good gladiator who had uh, lost and might have been killed, they would step in and and buy the guy off the sands. And Caesar's gladiators became very loyal to him. They acted uh, as sort of, they could act as bodyguards for him or his friends when he was uh, in Rome if he needed to, when he invaded Italy in 49. The first thing his political rivals did was arrest all of his gladiators because they thought they'd be a fifth column uh, working for Caesar. It really undermines the picture of the gladiator that we get in uh, shows like Spartacus as being a group of imprisoned slaves. These people uh, were really, at least were the ones who worked for Caesar, uh, very well treated. Uh, they could move around freely in society. Uh, they knew that their chances of dying uh, in the sand weren't all that great. It was a dangerous sport no matter how you do it. Uh, but Caesar made an effort to make it less dangerous if he could. After his victories in Civil War again, uh, Caesar realized that, you know, he had a popular touch. Uh, he had to be willing to let people laugh at him. Uh, he had to be willing, you know, to be seen to be at the games enjoying himself. Uh, he would even allow, uh, people, uh, you know, to attack him from the stage. At the same time, he would also put on shows the like of which nobody had ever seen. He'd put on mock battles. He would try to go, uh, you know, go one better uh, than anybody in the past. He's not the only Roman politician who's good at this. His rival in the Civil War, Nay, Pompey built the first stone theater in Rome, uh, put on a major spectacle. Uh, unfortunately for Pompey, uh, his his ear wasn't quite as good as Caesar's, uh, and he put on a couple of events that were flops. And it <laughs> was pretty clear that Caesar wasn't going to repeat that.
1: You brought up the, the mock battles that were staged, uh, which involved gladiators, and something else I found interesting in your book, and it, it made perfect sense when you explained it, is that these gladiator matches, or excuse me, the reenactment of battles involving gladiators, had great patriotic meaning for for the Romans so this was not only a way to build up the uh, the prestige of a particular politician it also served as kind of advancing i don't know if we can call it roman nationalism but roman patriotism yes
0: i think the, the games did play a, a real role in the roman sense of self and the romans saw themselves of course uh, as a valiant people and when they went to the games they liked to see their virtues uh, in front of them, they also like to sort of see, be able to participate even at a great distance uh, in the victories that their armies were winning in the provinces uh, and so, for instance, the Emperor Claudius uh, would get a bunch of con- uh, prisoners of war uh, and he'd have them fight out a battle for the Roman people to see so they could see what the conquest of Britain might look like. You know, there are no movies to watch you can't uh, turn to the internet and see some video there. there's no ancient YouTube. Uh, so the emperors had to, to choreograph all of this. Uh, they would also do it in an area that Caesar had first uh, dug out by the Tiber, where you could watch mock naval battles. Sometimes you'd do them on historical themes, so you could remember you know, what the ancestors did to the Persians before you declared war on Persia again. Um, it would also be the case, um, in a very grisly way, that you would bring captives in war, uh, before the Roman people and, and execute them. You might make them fight each other. Uh, you might throw them to the lions. But again, this is to give the Roman people a sense of who their enemies are. Uh, this is the one place where you would see them.
1: So you brought up the mock naval battles, and I know there's uh, uh, there's something of a debate as to whether these were actually staged in the Colosseum in Rome. What is, what is the evidence or the the, the current, current view on mock naval battles in the Colosseum?
0: There's a great deal of debate still about whether or not there were mock naval battles in the Colosseum. But the key point seems to me that the people who were actually there, the sources that we have which are contemporary uh, with the opening of the Colosseum, actually make it pretty clear that the naval events uh, weren't in the Colosseum itself. They were across the river uh, in the pond which had been uh, dug out uh, by Caesar, later Augustus, uh, for these mock naval battles, uh, and one point which has caused some confusion uh, is the fact that uh, a land event was then staged in the same area uh, because the uh, the area was boarded over uh, uh, the next after the naval battle uh, for a land battle to be seen. And uh, people had mistakenly seen that that, thought that, that was in the Coliseum. Uh, but it's pretty clear from the most contemporary sources. Uh, that this was actually across the river. Uh, the only person who says that there was naval battles in the Colosseum, uh, was actually writing hundreds of years, uh, more than a hundred years after the event. Uh, and I think he got himself a bit confused. Mm. Uh, another problem in the, in the Colosseum, uh, is there's no way to fill it up and drain it. Mm. Uh, and those sort of massive substructures of visitors that visitors to the Colosseum would see there now, uh, were all there when the building was built. I mean, there's, there's no actual way to put a decent boat in the Colosseum.
1: <laughs> All right, you mentioned Spartacus as, as one of the great gladiator movies, and uh, the, the other great gladiator movie that you mentioned in, in your book is Gladiator. And uh, so I, I want to ask, how historically accurate is Gladiator?
0: Gladiator is, I think, one of the great movies ever made, in part because of the way it brings the audience... Uh, you know, really into the Colosseum and you know, you're know you there cheering for Maximus along with everybody else, which in that sense of sort of including the audience uh, in the struggle of its hero, um, it's a wonderful evocation of the atmosphere of the Colosseum. Now, the things that go on there uh, in the movie are uh, great Hollywood uh, stuff. You have the, the mock battle and it, as the gladiators go in, somebody says, we don't usually use gladiators in this, do we? But that's one of the most accurate things they say in the
1: movie,
0: um, the duel that Maximus fights with the great champion gladiator. Again, you know that's the kind of thing that would happen, but there wouldn't be anybody releasing cats at you while you're doing it. Uh, so you know, as I say, it's it's a great movie. It does catch the emotional aspects of the of the amphitheater, even if it doesn't do so with the events that were there.
1: And matches to the death were actually rare, correct?
0: They were very rare. Uh, gladiators you know, highly trained professionals. Uh, they were often very popular figures, and people liked to see them fight again and again. Now, gladiators could die, obviously, because it's a dangerous sport. Medical care wasn't very good. Uh, you could be very badly injured. Uh, there was no sort of uh, surgery of the sort that we have nowadays. There's no Tommy John surgery. Uh, to get you back out on the amphitheater within a year if you had problems with your shoulder, uh, but most of the time gladiators did not fight to the death. They fought to a determined, a uh, fixed conclusion, which could be first blood, or it could be the surrender of your opponent, uh, or you could even fight to a draw. If the, stand, if the fans thought this was just so good, uh, they could start yelling that they should both be let go. They should, or they could both be declared winners. Now, people did fight in the amphitheater to the death. And those were condemned criminals, uh, and that was a part of the of the judicial process, and they're very separate from gladiators. And Romans would keep that uh that division between the real gladiator and the uh condemned prisoner uh very clearly separate in their own minds. Uh one interesting discussion that we get of the difference uh in a letter written in the first century A D, uh the author says, and Nobody was there to see the skill of the gladiator. Nobody was, you know, nobody was protected by armor. Or any of the things that you would see in a normal gladiatorial bout. It was just bloodshed. Um, and, and the audience likes that better than the real gladiators. Uh, but and that's part and parcel, I think, of the way. You even see the strategy to protect gladiators. Uh, that if the audience is going to demand more dangerous events or want to see more dangerous events using somebody besides the gladiators in those events, uh, I think was probably uh, a deliberate act. Um, you could have fights to the death, uh, but they would have to be specially sanctioned, um, and they are seem to be very rare, certainly outside of Rome, uh, and we only have them attested very occasionally uh, in the second and third centuries.
1: And I was surprised to learn from your book that there were women gladiators.
0: Yes, women gladiators uh, created a great deal of excitement in the Roman world. Uh, We don't absolutely know when they started fighting, uh, but I suspect they started fighting in the decade or so after the uh, assassination of Julius Caesar, uh, if for no other reason than uh, if Cicero could have called one woman he really disliked uh, a gladiator, I'm sure he would have done so. It never seems to have occurred to him. Uh, but by the time of Augustus, clearly women were fighting occasionally as gladiators. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, depiction of two women fighting on a relief that's right now in the British Museum, and they have mythological names. They're Amazon and Achillea, uh, and at the top of the thing, it says they fought to a draw. Uh, in a moment in Petronius's famous novel, Tyracon, People are complaining about, oh my God, this guy put on these terrible games. The gladiators were awful. Uh, you know, They were cowards. The audience insisted that they be flogged at the end of the last game and notice that they insist they're going to be flogged, not killed. Uh, but I'm going to put on really good games. I'm going to have female gladiators and the whole thing. Um, part of the ideology of this has got to do with the Roman interest in uh, Roman mythology. They knew that women had fought in the past because they have heard of the Amazon. So uh, part of what you do As sort of an ancient impresario, is try to bring the mythological world alive, and that would mean uh, women as gladiators. Uh, The Romans also, the Roman period also saw a great expansion of women in other sports as well. Uh, There are women wrestlers, uh, there are women um, running in foot races in the Greek world. And so, another aspect of Roman life is there's a good deal more equality for women in the Roman world than there had been in the Greek world. Women could own property. There's a sort of sense that women can do what important people do uh, and interesting people do. And so there are opportunities for them in sports that
1: just weren't there before. So, when talking about uh, the film Gladiator, you said that one thing that impressed you was it gave you this sense of uh, what it was like uh, at the amphitheater during a Gladiator mar- uh, match. And I want to ask you, what, what would have an afternoon at the amphitheater or the Hippodrome been like, and, and how would it compare, say, to an afternoon at the big house today?
0: Well, it would be a, a lot longer. You'd start first thing in the morning if you were going to the amphitheater, uh, and you'd go first of all and watch uh, wild beast hunts uh, right up until about lunchtime. Uh, and then uh, you would watch the execution of prim- prisoners at lunch, and people would be coming and going the whole time. Uh, it seems, and then in the afternoon um, you would see the uh, you would see gladiators fight. But you might really plan to take the whole day off and be in the Colosseum. Uh, and the same is with the same is true with chariot races. Uh, you'd go first thing in the morning. the The big race uh, is the first race. Very often, we're told uh, by the greatest of all charioteers, Diocles, that he won a number of the uh, times in the first race after the procession. Uh, uh, and they could have as many as twenty chariot races, uh, and we think that these things, you know, would be about a half an hour to get to run the race and get the thing set up, and so you could be there for ten to twelve hours.
1: And there was food concessions and everything then.
0: There are concession stands all around the place. We have people, you know, who say they're fruit sellers in the Circus Maximus. Uh, I think, you know, the sporting industry then is now uh, certainly spawns its own. World around the uh, around the venue uh, for people to come and uh, and to hang out and to, to argue about the event to uh, to say you know did this guy should this guy really have won oh my god how could this person have been so awful today uh, go right back to the tavern at the end of the fight you might see the uh, a gladiator who is uh, hangs out in the area or a charioteer they might go and meet their fans uh, after the event at uh, at a local tavern. Uh, it really would stretch out into the community just in the same way as you see um, around any stadium in a city now and a whole series of restaurants and bars uh, for the
1: fans. So sticking with the connections between ancient sports and contemporary sports, I want to ask you, since since you, as you said you sat on the advisor, the athletics advisory committee at the University of Michigan, and on the committee you likely discussed what is the larger purpose of sports? Why do we devote so much of our resources to athletics. So in your view, are sports today more like the contests of the Greeks or more like the entertainments of the Romans?
0: I think that sports today are more like the entertainments of the Romans. Uh, We see them very much as a way of helping to build a community outside uh, outside of the stadium. Then as now, we have it as a way of building, of bringing thing, of bringing people together. Uh, but we also feel what people take with them as they leave the stadium, and a, a sense of having been there with their friends, people who shared interest. You, whenever you walk into Michigan Stadium, you watch this wonderful community coming together uh, for three or four hours around the game, uh, and that I think is very much in the spirit of uh, of Roman sports. Uh, we also, of course, have uh, some of the negative sides of, of both Greek or Roman sport uh, is something that we've always got to be very concerned with, which is um, can we protect the safety of athletes this is a major concern for us now. Uh, can we protect the integrity of the sport? Um, can we make sure that uh, we're looking to get, uh, we, we keep the best interests uh, of our athletes in mind? And I think in the Roman world as well, you would see there was a great deal of concern uh to make sure that you could actually get decent medical care uh for your
1: for your gladiators. I
0: mean the most famous doctor in the ancient world, Galen, uh originally trained uh and got experience uh treating gladiators and was very proud of the way uh that he was able to keep all of his all of his people alive. Um, with charioteers as well, we can see you know people taking real interest uh in the development of those careers. Again, these are very dangerous sports people have to me. Be- Careful of it. And, and we've also seen uh, nowadays as people are bigger, stronger, better conditioned uh, that without really being conscious of how it got that way, uh, we can see that what goes on in a football field or in other venues has just gotten to be uh, potentially a lot more dangerous for athletes, and we have to be careful about that.
1: So we're almost out of time. I want to ask you, which ancient event do you wish you could have seen?
0: If I had to pick one ancient event, I think it would probably be uh Milo of Croton winning his first Olympic championship, the first of six. Uh I think that was that would be the first one I'd like to see. Um, if I were to pick another event, uh I suppose it would be uh watching the great charioteer Diocles win his thousandth race. Uh not unlike you know watching Derek Jeter pick up his 3,000th hit, when these guys started hitting their milestones, I think the fans they would, would, would be electric in the stands uh, than as it is now.
1: So Diocles, I remember reading something that Diocles is, is thought to be the wealthiest athlete in, in all of history, correct?
0: That's right. Diocles uh, made an enormous fortune. Uh, he had a very long career, a career of more than 20 years, uh, but he was making more than a million sesterces a year in the course of that career. He was, uh, wealthier than just about anybody in Rome, uh, at that time except the emperor. Uh, and, uh, but he, you know, he was, he was really good at it. I mean, the lo- his longevity is extraordinary. Uh, we don't have a professional athlete again who, like Diocles or Milo, could be at the top of their sport for more than 20 years. Those are just a
1: remarkable records. Yeah, so you mentioned, so Milo competed in seven Olympics as a wrestler?
0: Yep, seven Olympics. Uh, won six and lost the last
1: one. Well, wow. So he would have been from ages when to when. Do you have record of that?
0: Uh, we don't really know what age he would have won the first one at, but probably he was around 20. Yeah. Uh, so he was at the, the height of his skills still at the in his mid-40s.
1: Wow. Huh. Well, i got to get to work then. All right. <laughs> Well, I ask you to to finish uh what are you working on now?
0: Uh right now I just I'm writing a biography of the Emperor Constantine. Uh we're having the 1700th anniversary of his conversion before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge uh next October and I hope that uh my Constantine will be out there for the anniversary. All right. Well,
1: very good. Well, I enjoyed this book very much as as I said with my questions there is a lot uh there is a lot I learned and uh uh, you know, as I said, we all have kind of bits of information about the ancient Olympics and uh, of the gladiators, usually a skewed view from Hollywood that we get. So it was it was great fun to read uh, what it's what it's actually like. So so thank you very much for coming on the program today, David. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. You've been listening to an interview with David Potter about his book, The Victor's Crown: A History of Ancient Sport from Homer to Byzantium published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of recent publications and subjects from military history to popular music. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to New Books and Sports at the iTunes Store and link to our page on Facebook. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.